Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. It's Cats at Night on the Red Apple Podcast Network. On the line, we have with us a fellow from the Empire Center for Public Policy, James Hanley. James, welcome to Cats at Night. Thank you. Good to be here. So I have a quick question to kick us off here. Uh, There's been a lot of brouhaha, a lot of hot air, shall we say, about the gas stoves controversy. Is is this a policy yet? And also, is it something that's happening in New York and the entire United States since Biden said the same thing as, as Hochul did? Uh, it's not a policy yet. It's in the scoping plan that the Climate Action Council laid out for implementing the uh, Climate Leadership and Com- Community Protection Act. So it's supposed to become policy, but Hochul's not ready to make it policy yet. Mm-hmm. And on the national level, uh, it was just one member of the uh, the uh, I'm sorry I'm drawing a blank the federal agency um, that suggested not the EPA uh, oh the Consumer Fed, Safety Commission the Consumer yes thank you yeah. uh, that suggested uh, banning them and the chair of the CPSC and uh, President Biden shot that down very quickly so no it's not happening on a federal level at any time soon the story is more mixed in New York because the Climate Action Council scoping plan does call for uh, banning sales of gas stoves by 2035, but Hochul is not ready to. Yeah, Hochul said the other day, uh, I like my gas stove. Now, uh, one day she says that, and the other day she says that uh, we're going to ban gas stoves. What's the truth? Uh, Well, the truth is, I think, I mean, I think the truth is that gas stoves are going to be banned eventually in Michigan unless people who like their gas stoves organize and fight back. Uh, because the I think what just about everything in the scoping plan is going to become the rules sooner or later. Uh, this is this is something that can be done just by regulation through the Department of Environmental Conservation. Uh, so they could pick this up at any time and start rulemaking on that, and they could they could do it this year. Or they could wait several years before doing it and hope that the. But at a certain point, we down. go back to the Supreme Court that voted that ordinary people on these commissions cannot make laws. Laws are made by Congress. Am, am I wrong, Anthony Weiner? Am I wrong there? Yeah, all, all agencies have rulemaking that that they can do. It just the only thing the Supreme Court said is that now it is susceptible to a court challenge, like laws. But yeah, agencies, Congress doesn't pass a law that says go ban stoves. What they'll do is they say to an agency, go do things that are help healthy and helpful for consumers, and then the agency goes out and does it. And And where that line is drawn between what should be considered a law and what should be considered a regulation is sometimes pretty vague, and that's why they get challenged. That's why Dr. Hanley is absolutely right about that. The problem is you have this boilerplate, broad-based general language, and then the agencies put meat on that, and they they overreach. Mm -hmm. Well, the Mm -hmm. restaurants say they can't cook great meals without gas stoves. So just to be clear, this is not like... People are going to come, federal agents are going to come into your house and tear out your gas stove. It's for new construction, right? Well, banning them after 2035, I think we heard, right? But I think you can keep your gas stove if you have one. 
Yeah, nobody's going to tear them out of your house. Uh, there, there are two proposals. One is to ban uh, gas stoves and all new construction starting yeah. a couple I, of years from I better from get now. gas. I have electric stoves right now. I better get gas right now. Hurry, run. <laughs> Before they stop. Well, what happens if your stove breaks? It's gas, and you right. want to replace it. What happens then, Dr. Get Hanley? It, get it now. Well, that's, that's, the, that's the other proposal, is that after 2035, you would not be able to replace that gas Ew. stove. So wow. in, in the year 2034, if your gas stove is getting old, you want to replace it quickly and hang on to it for another 10, 15, wow. 20 so years. So, Anthony, you're shaking your head. What's going well, on I mean, this, this is an interesting conversation, but none of this has happened, and there's no real sign that any of this is going to happen. What's Jay, probably, uh, if, 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 I had, if I had a guess, John, what I see is going to happen is the federal government and the state are going to offer incentives for people not to install these or to replace them like we do with other things. But this is a little bit of like, let's, what's our outrage of the week going to be? And no one's taking away anyone's gas stove. We're all going to be able to make our burgers. Yeah, but the doctor, this is Craig Eaton. You know, they want to take away the gas stoves. They want to take away our gas cars. We don't have enough electricity to, to function to to power all these cars minor if they get rid of gas cars. Minor <laughs> we we don't also have need oil. So, so we, need, we also need oil to make the, ga- the electric mean, it, work. It's crazy. What what kind of research have they done before they come out with these nitwit ideas that we're going to get rid of all these things? Okay, speaking so, kind of nitwit ideas, Anthony, we want to There's not a lot of research supporting it. There, it, there really isn't. You uh, know, I, I don't know about NISO, you, Craig. I believe NISO says we're going to need a lot more uh, energy backup as uh, as the demand grows. And right now, it's it's really dubious that we can reach maybe sometime in the future, but it's doubtful we can reach these James renewable energy goals by Hanley. the time that the time Thank you. This Thank conversation you. definitely is not We're over. We're going to have to continue it next week. It's Cats at Night on the Red Apple Podcast Network. This is Cats at Night on the Red Apple Podcast Network. Laura? Yeah, so a uh, former congressman, Anthony Weiner, who I have known for many, many years because I covered him back when he was in, I think, in, in Congress back in the day, maybe even city council. Anyway, enough of, of my preamble. Anthony, what do you need to get off your chest and how does it tie into what's going on now? Well, we've had, we've had a first, I appreciate it. I've never gotten the sounder, the breaking new sounder, even on my show, the middle, I don't use that because I'm never doing anything that timely. Well, you, you, you got to tell people, you know, you were very upset this afternoon when we were talking and I said, well, get it off your chest. Come on a five o'clock show and get it off your chest. So here's the background. In 2016, we had arguably the greatest of all October surprises. Hillary Clinton leading by about six points. And then suddenly they release information that came from my laptop of all places that the FBI had had for the better part of a month, but they waited for a while to release it. All kinds of leaks coming out of the FBI, even people in this building who who are on the air for ABC had access to information. The FBI turned out that in, in the New York Bureau was doing a lot of leaking to hurt Hillary Clinton. That's been known for a while. The inspector general pointed that out. The Mueller report pointed it out. It's really not much dis- dispute. But last week, some big news happened about where that source of that leak might have been when there was an arrest. And it was an, an FBI agent, but not just any FBI agent. It was a guy named Charge McGonigal, who was the special agent in charge of counterintelligence. The guy in New York who was, who was supposed to be in charge of protecting us from Russian disinformation, it turns out, according to the indictment, was being paid by this guy, Oleg Deripaska. Now, that guy... If you might remember his name, that's the guy that Manafort was involved in that wound up sending Manafort to jail. So it's the same guy. It's the exact same guy. Wow. And so now, now the New York Times is under a lot of pressure because they were getting sources. They were quoting uh, FBI sources throughout the entire campaign, 
raising questions about Hillary and frankly being kind of gentle with Trump. Now, remember, at that time, no one thought Trump was going to win, so there wasn't as much of a bright light on him. But now it turns out that not just any old FBI agent, but someone who is at the very, very top, was he faces 75 years in jail right now. You mean they don't shoot people anymore? They don't. Well, I don't. Listen, the guys in the guys in right to have. I mean, he has a, a right to have his case heard. It seems like they got a pretty a pretty deep indictment against him. The thing that is troubling about this is the big mystery that had been going on for a long time. Is you know, I have a personal dog in this hunt. This my laptop gets blamed for a lot. The FBI had my laptop for a month before it came out, and within two days after they released it, said that okay, we've got this information. They said, oh, there's actually nothing on here. And quietly, Comey withdrew it. But by then, the damage was done to Hillary Clinton. Yeah. Now, Hillary Clinton was up by six points the day of the announcement, had finally reached 50% favorable the day of the announcement. Steadily thereafter, and we all know what happens. So this whole question, and the reason I bring this up is tomorrow on, on The Middle Unplugged, it's a podcast that I do. I'm going to talk about the idea that they just passed this new subcommittee that the Republicans put in the House of Representatives to investigate the deep state, to investigate what's really going on in the FBI. And every Democrat voted against and I'm like, Democrats have as many questions about the FBI as Republicans. Why would they voted against it. They voted against it because, frankly, we already have a Judiciary Committee. They voted against it because they think it's a witch hunt. They voted against it because they don't think there was anything wrong done. And let's face it, the Durham report, the Mueller report, all the, the Inspector General report, a lot of things about the FBI have been looked at. But this thing has never now, been. My so, sources, my sources at the FBI uh, tell me that that uh, investigation was taken away from the New York office, and it was run by the Washington office. Well, the, the Inspector General report, they, in, they interviewed Lynch, who was the AG at the time, and Comey, and said, what motivated you to do this thing that violated 70 years of precedent by announcing right on top of an election? And Comey said he was afraid of leaks coming out of his own, out of the New York office. Lynch said, we have to be worried about that. The quote from the report says the visceral hate for Hillary Clinton is very deep. We always that's been out there for a very long time. But now we have an actual name and a face. And it wasn't just any old person. It was the very, very head of the counterterrorism unit, which is and really this man accepted money from Russian Russian oligarchs. The big to to to, to change that, that's what around. I to get to. Go ahead, Tony Carbonetti. So, so, so what was his career path? So he ended up as head of the New York office. Yeah. Right. How long was he in the FBI? And when he, do we think he was first contacted by the Russians? Well, according to the indictment, he already had engagement. He had this guy, uh, uh, Deperska, he had identified him as a as someone that they were going to try to flip. They got his daughter. While working for the FBI. Correct. They got his daughter a job internship at the NYPD. When the argument that this guy made, this guy McGonagall made, he says, oh, we want to we want to buddy up to this Russian oligarch. We think we might be able to flip him. This is the number one wealthiest oligarch. This is the oligarch above all oligarchs. And so the, the implication is in the indictment was this was going on for some time. So he's investigating him and has contact with Correct. him? Correct. And remember something. And he's head of the FBI office in the And they're really after Hillary Clinton. They really didn't want her to but, win. But he's a, he, at that point, he's an Obama appointee. Well, that, that's exactly right. He's right? in the FBI. He, he's the in FBI. the FBI as an Obama appointee, but he's anti-Hillary. The, yeah, the FBI in the New York office was leaking to our friend Mr. Giuliani, and he was just doing his job. He was, well, he was remember, helping the there campaign. There was never love between Obama and the Clintons. Well, no, this is not – well, listen, if you I believe – So when you Trump, say they w- never wanted her, who are you, who was the, the they? The New York the, – the, the inspector general who w- looked at this whole thing, inspector general of the Justice Department, looked at this whole thing, and they were trying to answer the big question, which is – 
How do we make sure that what happened with the Comey opening up the investigation, then closing it and costing Hillary the election never happens again? Get to the bottom of what really happened. So they interviewed everyone in charge, including Comey and Comey's boss, the head of the Justice Department, the, the attorney general at the time, Lynch. And they both said part of the reason they felt they had to come out with it was people like our friend Rudy, people like Devin Nunes, was going on TV and say something's big about to happen, something mm. big. They were leaking furiously. And when they talked about it, so you're saying the, F, the, the New York office of the, the New York FBI office of the FBI and was now, out to undermine right. Hillary. And that, that hmm. part of it is not really all that much in dispute. They were leaking heavily all throughout that part. And even Comey's explanation that that was part of the reason he did it, it has a little bit of sense to it. But now there's a name to this. It's not some secretary on the third floor. This is Charles McGonigal was taking hundreds of thousands of dollars. The guy guy that's supposed to be investigating rushing disinformation. And it wasn't just the Wiener laptop. Also, there was a newspaper story in the New York Times, this big expose. It looks like there aren't many connections to Trump and Russia. He is Mm. treating – there's no other way to say it. It's treason against his government. Being an FBI guy committing treason. And do you understand why I have a dog in this hunt? My laptop gets blamed for this. My laptop was seized, had nothing on it that yes. was incriminated. Everybody okay? says, oh, it's because Everyone of this. Everyone says Anthony Winter's laptop, right? They got it at the end of September. This is October 26th when they finally have this press conference. Two days later, after looking at it and seeing it's a copy of a, of a BlackBerry that Huma used five years ago, they said, okay, there's nothing here. The damage had already been done. But the big question has always been, okay, the, the, the New York office leaks. Okay, fine. But who? Who would be doing this? And now we know someone who's connected with Russia, who is trying now, to undermine Hillary. The New York Times knew who it was? Well, the New York Times today. They, would know, source, they, would, know right. they would know who their source Tony's was. Tony's right. Today, that reporter, now that he knows that this guy was on the take, should either say, the reporters in the New York Times, should either say, this was my source. They're never going to. They're never going to disclose never. their source. Oh, oh, they're never going to. Oh, if, 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 if your source is a lying crook, if your source is a lying crook, you can't tell. You find out the conspirator in a treason. Yeah. And also, who else do you want to say? It? Who's you, the reporter at the time? Uh, I don't have. Uh, I do have it here somewhere. Well, if your source lies to you, do you have an obligation to your source? No, but more importantly, you have an obligation to your readers. Lie to you? Yeah. Yeah, you, you know you don't obligation. trust them anymore, but you never burn them Laura, ever. Laura is absolutely right. You have an obligation to source. You can't. You'll give never it up. be trusted again by other trusted again. You're sources. Right. Yeah. Well, well, and, and let's remember, but the highest, them. no, but Tony, the highest imperative is your obligation to your readers. Yeah. If you're getting information from a Russian source and you don't tell us, okay, maybe you didn't know at the time. Obviously, you didn't know at the time. Obviously. This guy's the head of the FBI counterterrorism, but now he has an obligation to stand but says that's not my source. That's all he has to do. Um, yeah, I'd love to know who the reporter is. Yeah, let me say it, it was like three reporters. I got to I got to find it here. Well, um, we're and you're to talking- take a break. Uh, we're going to be coming back after the break uh, uh, with James uh, Hanley. Hanley, James and Hanley. he's got some other revelations. But but Anthony- let me let me let me just say by way of conclusion, the Middle Unplugged podcast on the Red, on the Red Apple Podcast Network. It's dropping tomorrow morning. I'm going to do a whole episode about this with names and places and dates. It's Cats at Night on the Red Apple Podcast Network. It's Cats at Night on the Red Apple Podcast Network. We have on Cats at Night, we're going we're actually right to her right now, is Melissa DeRosa. And Ooh. I want to know if Melissa has a gas stove or <laughs> Yeah, this is the we're hot com- topic. We're coming to take it out. That's Melissa, what we're doing. it's you They're and me and all the guys. They're coming to take it away. <laughs> <laughs> all right, the gas stove police have arrived. 
<laughs> I'm a gas stove girl myself. But, yeah, you know, me too. Just me. So there's a lot going on in Albany. And from your perch as a Democratic consultant and someone who has served uh, governor quite recently, Governor Andrew Cuomo, uh, let's get into this whole hokal veto of the Grieving Families Act last night. Was that a slap in the face to the legislature after they dinged LaSalle for top judge? No, I mean, I I think it's the opposite. I think that Hochul sort of had her back up against a wall because there were some real fatal flaws in that legislation. Mm. And I think that she was in good faith trying to figure out how to negotiate it. But, you know, I woke up yesterday morning and I saw that she had written an op-ed in the Daily News sort of making her case for these chapter amendments, which for listeners is, you know, you can make modifications to a bill after it's been passed. It's It's a gentleman's agreement between the governor and the legislature that you'll make changes, you'll sign the bill, and then you'll pass a subsequent bill to, to make those changes. And so she went out and sort of made this case. And as soon as I saw it, I was like, what is she thinking? The time to have done this was a month ago. If you're going to try to engage the public and sort of stake out your position and say, I believe in the bill and the good faith of the bill, but at the same time, you know, it needs changes and this is why I'm doing this, then she needed to have that conversation publicly a month ago. And she did it the day of, and it actually sort of reminded me of what happened with LaSalle. And again, the legislature doesn't look bad here because the advocates, the grieving families are on their side. And so now they're all just angry with hopeful. And, and so and you calling know, it, something sort of grieving, calling something grieving families act. I mean, how it's hard to be against that. However, there I agree. I think there are some things in this bill that aren't good. The fact that insurance costs are going to go up. It's going to be chaotic for the hospitals to manage this. There's a lot of it's very problematic. The, the larger Melissa, it's, it's Richard Warner. Let me ask you this question. Is there, in fact, a cold war going on between the legislature and the governor now? That's what it looks like. I mean, look, I think it's a pretty hot war. I think that, you know, yesterday you saw the legislature sort of stuck their thumb in her eye on the Grieving Families Act. They put out a statement saying, you know, her op-ed in the Daily News was not in good faith. She hasn't actually been trying to negotiate with us. We stand with the families against her. She's trying to water it down for the wealthy insurance companies. So they swung right back at her, which is something that in my, you know, when Andrew Cuomo was there for 11 years, I never saw one time. I never saw something like that. And then on top of it, you saw that Mike Gianaris and Brad Hoyleman, two of the senators who, you know, chiefly killed LaSalle in the confirmation process, introduced legislation yesterday basically saying that there had been dark money involved in trying to promote LaSalle and to try to persuade the Senate to get him seated and they and they won't disclose the money and they're saying we're going to pass a law that says you have to disclose the money so it was their way of doing sort of like a one-two punch like we're not even done with you on LaSalle yet we've beaten you but we're not we're not done kicking you in the head so you know and then you've got Andrea Stewart Cousins out there saying I haven't spoken to the governor in, in two weeks mm. going into the budget and yeah. so Look, I mean, here's the thing about power. It's zero sum. If I have it, you don't. And what mm-hmm. happened here going into, I think, you know, the budget, which is coming out tomorrow, is that the legislature with the pay raise, with LaSalle, with the Grieving Families Act, they're saying, look, Kathy Hochul, you may have won, but we're in charge and we have the power now. And we're not giving it back. Are so you that's do you th- sort of the bigger story? Do you think the legislature might um, override They can't on the Grieving Families Act because it was done in this period of time where you have um, where you have a pocket veto, which means the legislature doesn't have an opportunity Ah. to do it. It's it's if you pocket veto it in January, the preceding legislature that passed it is no longer seated, so they can't overrule you. 
So she did it in this window of time where they can't do anything with her. But I wouldn't put it past this legislature, given this current dynamic, to very quickly pass another version of that bill, let her veto it, and then they could come back and override her veto. So Mm. it is setting up this sort of, you know, who's who's in charge, who's not in charge, and the legislature is asserting themselves in a way that I haven't seen in my lifetime. Very interesting. And this leads us to the whole bail reform conversation as well. Uh, where there was that long hearing, I think it was the day before yesterday, uh, giving all the statistics. And, I, you know, with statistics, you can slice and dice them and have them say anything you want. It's kind of like scripture. Uh, what did you make of that? And do you think that uh, Hochul has the ammunition to make changes that some people think are really needed? So I actually think that what I'm hearing from my sources in Albany is that I think that the legislative leaders are willing to do Something And, you know, Reverend Al Sharpton sort of convened all the black leaders a couple Mm. of weeks ago with Eric Adams on this topic, said, we've all got to come to the meeting of the minds. The kids who are dying are our kids and our communities. And where crime is rampant is in the black and brown communities. And we've got to confront this and stop sticking our head in the sand. And so I think Sharpton is taking a, a lead role in trying to corral Senate Majority Leader and the Assembly Speaker, you know, at the behest of Mayor Adams, who rightly, I think, has sort of put this issue front and center and trying to clean up the crime issue. And so I do think that Sharpton is going to drag the leaders along to do something. And the question is, what is the something? And I think anything short of dangerousness will continue to leave everyone sort of vulnerable to the attacks, that bail reform is at the root of the crime issue, because that's sort of a narrative that has taken hold. And I don't see them getting that holy grail. So the question is, what do they get short of that? And does it satisfy the police unions and the judges and the editorial boards? And, you know, that's two two things. Melissa, two things they absolutely positively have to get. They have to change the discovery laws and the open file discovery and the timeframes. And the raise the age law has to be changed and hold these kids responsible. Exactly. Judge. Thanks, Judge. uh, Melissa, it's Tony Carbonetti. So Sharpton just found out now after 30 years that the black and brown communities are the most affected by crime. I mean, seriously? He he, he hasn't figured out that the bail reform and discovery laws, like the judge just said, are doing more damage to those communities. Where is he? Where's all the legislature? Well, look, to to Sharpton's credit and to Mayor Adams's credit, the only way this is going to happen is if they move the leaders, right? The the legislative leaders, Andre and Carl, you see, have been intractable since 2019 on doing any major changes to this. You know, we went back at it in 2020. They went back and nibbled at the edges last year. So if it takes Al Sharpton and Mayor Adams to sort of lead the charge on this, then all more the power to them. So, you know, I think that we should keep focus on it getting done now. But, yeah, no, it's, I think it's only going to happen if Sharpton flexes his muscles and brings the conferences along. No, I know I'm there's supporting always... Mayor Adams, and Al Sharpton is supporting Mayor Adams right now. And maybe I, Sharpton is the right. one to do maybe it now. Will, maybe they will get something done. Hopefully they need to. I mean, Melissa, you were there when this was created, and I know there's always good intention. And so you can actually speak to what was the intended part of these laws and now what, what's actually happened in reality. You know well, and saying? that's the problem, right? It's like the pendulum. It's like for so long, the, the scale of justice was tipped in the opposite direction. And so you make a good faith effort to try to level the playing field. But sometimes when you do that, you go too far. And what being a leader really is, is recognizing when something that you've exactly. done has gone too far and then fixing it and addressing it head on and not sticking your head in the sand and pretending it's not a problem. So, 
you know, however it gets done, as long as it gets done, I do not believe they will get everything that we want. I'm not sure it's going to end up satisfying everyone at the end of the day. So that'll be, you know, the then you know you have a good question. bill. If, if, if yeah. <laughs> when everyone's well, got a little and, complaint, it works. When everyone's a little and, bit unhappy. And the thing is, you know, to Laura's point or the top of this, the hearing yesterday with the legislature, they're not there yet. So it's going to take the leaders to pull it over the top. Melissa DeRosa, thank you so much for your insight and intelligence. It's Cats at Night on the Red Apple Podcast Network. This is Cats at Night on the Red Apple Podcast Network. On the line, we have retired DEA special agent in charge, Derek Maltz. Derek, welcome to Cats at Night. How are you tonight? Thanks for having me back. Doing fabulous. What's what's the latest revelations, uh, uh, Derek? Well, the latest revelation is the entire country should be very, very concerned about all the seizures of uh, deadly fentanyl and all the kids that are dying. And also, of course, the the most recent finding that the Families Against Fentanyl concluded from the CDC stats that the fastest growing population of dead kids in America is under 14 years old. We're seeing kids dropping left and right. We're seeing infants that are getting into the stashes of their families' uh, fentanyl dying in their houses. We're seeing parents being uh, charged with murder or other types of homicide. But really, John, what we're seeing now is finally people are talking about destroying the cartels using U.S. military and the intelligence community. Didn't didn't I see that movie? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, look, this is a clear and present danger on our country, and I don't know what we're waiting for. I mean, we're losing 9,000 Americans a month now. How many more do we have to lose? Do you think the military, is that that's that's the way to go? 100%. And I'll tell you why. If you have a flood in your house and the plumber comes to your house, the first thing they're going to do is shut down your main valve so they can figure out what's going on. Right now, we have flooding of fentanyl in our country coming in from Mexico, and the cartels are running with impunity. And the corrupt Mexican government officials are not taking care of business. And Homeland Security on our end is not taking care of business. Well, nobody's taking care of business. That's why it's a perfect storm. That's why it's a perfect families, song. John, the families are out there, you know, doing the grassroots movement, and they're educating schools. They're running around. Law enforcement's getting big seizures. They're getting indictments. But they can't capture or extradite these major cartel leaders. We have to shut down the supply. So a couple of the congressmen, Michael Waltz and uh, Crenshaw, are actually leading efforts, a resolution to authorize U.S. military. We're not talking about a war with Mexico either. We're Derek, talking about precision strikes to destroy the chemical production labs. Derek, this that is, was this in is, the movies. This is Craig Eaton. My, my uncle was in the DEA for many, many years, and he used to tell us as we were kids that they can never, they can never make pot legal because pot leads to cocaine, leads to crack, leads to heroin, leads to other drugs. Do you agree with that? Yeah, and I'll tell you really what's going on now, Craig. Great, great point. Uh, you know, historically, you know, nobody thought smoking a joint was that big of a deal. Now the THC is so high, there are studies coming out everywhere that it's causing psychosis, schizophrenia. It's causing depression, anxiety. And guess what happens to a kid in high school that's depressed and is anxious? He goes out and tries to find Xanax 
and yeah. the Xanax is killing him because it's deadly fentanyl. Because you need so something stronger. You, you got to keep. You got to keep looking for things stronger because the pot yes. isn't working anymore, and then the cocaine yes. isn't working anymore. So you got to go to crack. But it, it's crazy where we're going in this country. So, right. Derek. Well, you talked yes. about the supply chain. Uh, conventional wisdom has it that the ingredients to make fentanyl come from China. They give it, they sell it to the cartels in Mexico, and then it comes right. and floods this country. Is that is that still the case? Yes, I lived it. In, in 2008, we started seeing the bombing of America with synthetic cannabinoids and cannabinoids coming from Chinese labs, like Wuhan-style labs, part of their unrestricted warfare to destabilize America. As uh, the governor... Uh, Noam just said, basically, just a couple of weeks ago, China is destroying. They want to destroy the U.S., exactly what she said. And Michael McCall, Homeland Security, former committee congressman from Texas, said the greatest foreign policy for China is to sell fentanyl. What they're doing now is they're using the cartels as the proxy to do the dirty work to deliver the finished product to our kids. They're providing the chemicals to make this poison in their labs in Mexico the labs are growing in strength. They're growing in volume. And by the way, here's another thing that people aren't even talking about. They're only like 13 cents or 15 cents a pill to make in Mexico. So the profit is off the charts. So if you have a million pills, do the math. It doesn't cost much to make the pills, but then you can sell them for 10, 20, 30. I just saw recently talking to the head of DEA in Denver. They're selling the pills for $150 a piece in the Montana Indian reservations. Mm. Oh, have you guys seen the recent King County, Seattle report? The coroner has no more coolers left for the dead bodies. They had 35 dead in the first 21 days of January. Like, what are we waiting for? We've never seen this in the country's history. Thank God WABC is at least covering it, and some other networks are covering it. But we're not getting any movement. You and know, it's pissing me off because I deal with the families. Derek, I'm sitting here. It's Tony Carbonetti. I'm sitting here thinking to myself, Three years ago, when we, we all sat around the television and watched the numbers climb about COVID, knowing full well that at some point there would be a vaccine, there'd be a therapeutic drug, that we would solve the problem. What are we doing to solve this problem? These numbers are going up. They're more dramatic than COVID, if you ask me. I mean, over 100,000 in a, a year, and we're doing... And young th- people. But, Right, young people, Kids. there's no ticker on CNN or, or Fox every right. night with how many are dying. That, why are we not doing that? Well, question. that's a great question, and that's the number one question that every family member has asked me, and I don't have an answer. And it's affecting it's, everybody. Think about it. Everyone yeah, here knows people even, that died from it. Yes. I have five of my friends who lost their children mm. to opioids, fentanyl, and overdoses. Yeah. Five. Yeah, but, but here's the thing. There's a difference between kids that got hooked on pills and then went to heroin, snorted too much heroin, and overdosed on heroin. What we have now is it's not really overdose, it's poisoning, because most of the people taking this stuff don't expect to die. You know, kids are supposed to make mistakes and learn from mistakes, not die from mistakes. And the thing that pisses me off also, guys, and is that, you know, I have a saying I've been pushing out a long time now. It's not a red or a blue issue. It's red, white, and blue because every American is being impacted in some way. We all know people that are dropping from fentanyl poisoning. So we need to get one issue that everyone can agree on and go after the cartels and shut them down. But that's going to expose the wide open borders, and that's the problem. Well, that's the Homeland problem. Security is not doing their job. There's nobody uh, going to 
You know, nobody's going to doubt that. Uh, retired DEA special agent in charge, Derek Maltz, thank you for everything you've done for our country and our people and continue to speak out. You're, you're, you're a real person. Thank you so much. And thank we'll you. Keep, keep speaking out. It's Cats at Night on the Red Apple Podcast Network. Cats at Night on the Red Apple Podcast Network. We have Eric Levine, who is head of litigation at his law firm. Eric, I got a question for you. Uh, we yeah. just saw Tony Blinken over uh, in Israel talking to his the folks over there. It seems like this is an impossible nut to crack. Are we working towards a solution? Is there hope between Israel and the Palestinians? Not in our lifetime. Mm. There, are some, there are some problems that are intractable and have no solutions and need to be managed. I mean, what we're seeing going on right now in the Middle East, in Israel, amongst the Palestinians, is not really a reaction, although you'll see it in the papers, it's portrayed as a reaction to the new Israeli government. It's not. It's, a, it's the old story of inter, intra-Palestinian power struggle. Mm. And who's, who's going to take over for Mahmoud Abbas when he drops dead? Because that's, that day's coming. He's old. And you have on one side Abbas, who was elected in 2005 and is now in the 18th year of his four-year term. And he would never have a new election because he knows Hamas would win. And Hamas is angry because if he had an election, they would win. So you have Hamas, who is backed by Iran, Islamic Jihad, who is backed by Iran, now having a, a power struggle with the Palestinian Authority, uh, which is just a kleptocracy and is, and is completely abandoned and undermined the Palestinian people in Judea and Samaria, otherwise known as the West Bank. Mm. And, that you, and that's what you see is, is going on now. It's that, it's that power struggle. It's not about reforming Israeli courts. It's not about Netanyahu. I mean, keep in mind, the Gulf states, the Arab Gulf states, have stopped funding the Palestinian Authority because it's so corrupt. Eric. So the oh, yeah. It's Richard Weinberg. My my problem is that the United States taxpayers are giving money to the Palestinian PLO, and their people are destroying and making attacks on synagogues and innocent people at bus stops. And they reward them with money, and they pay their, they Anthony pay their families. Anthony Weiner is shaking his head. What's the matter, Anthony? Well, I just want to clarify. I just want to clarify. No, some money is going to, to the PLO. It, the money that's going to the territories, actually, the Israeli government has told Congress they want to continue to go. They don't want to further destabilize it. But, Eric, you, you make a good point. When people say, why don't they just negotiate a settlement, the problem is, at least as, as far as the territory is concerned, there's no, there's no one to negotiate with. There's no one who either has the political wait to be able to mm. live up to a deal. And frankly, in, in the battle that you described between Hamas and Mahmoud Abbas, I don't even, it doesn't seem like that's going to get settled anytime soon, right? Right. It, it will not. And it's, and it's worse than what you're describing. I beg to differ on you with you saying that the Israelis are giving money to the territories and that they want the Palestinian Authority to survive. The Palestinian Authority has declared that it's no longer going to cooperate with the Israelis in dealing with the uh, security needs of the Israelis. The Israelis are going to stop that aid. The fundamental problem really is that the Biden administration is no longer enforcing the Taylor Force Act, which it's no longer enforcing the law, which provides that to the extent that the Palestinian Authority continues to fund terrorism and reward families of uh, Palestinian terrorists that kill Israelis, that we must deduct that amount of money 
that we give to the Palestinians and the Palestinian Authority. Now, keep in mind, you, you talk about the, uh, the, you have the, you have the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas, we should always keep in mind, is a disciple of Yasser Arafat. He learned at the knee of Yasser Arafat. He wrote a thesis in the Soviet Union to get his PhD on Holocaust denial. And the man has been a terrorist since the day he was born and corrupt since the day he started working with Yasser Arafat. He has, he, in 2008, he walked away from a peace deal. He offered, he was offered his own state. Palestinians offered a state. And he walked away. George W. Bush is very clear that it was a boss that walked away from A. Ormark's offer. So he's not, a, he, he, and the reason he walked away was because the Israelis would not give them the right of return. But more importantly, the Israeli, he would not agree to end uh, hostilities. He wanted to continue the fight even after he got his own state. So he's not interested in it. He's interested in a one-state solution, and that is one state Palestinian and another state called Israel that will eventually become Palestinian. Eric Levine, side, thank you. We're out of time. We've got to go to a hard break. Uh, but thank you. Keep speaking out uh, for uh, truth and justice in the American way like we, like we all stand for. Thank you so much. It's Cats at Night on the Red Apple Podcast Network. This is Cats at Night on the Red Apple Podcast Network. Before I introduce Andrew McCarthy, Andrew, I wanted to tell you, uh, we were kicking around what we wanted to talk to you about. Uh, but I want to know, uh, since you're a columnist for the National Review, what's your latest column about? What are you, what's got you going right now? Well, we got an interesting report today that the FBI conducted a search of uh, President Biden's office at the Penn Biden Center in yeah. mid-November. Uh, so that's what I'm looking into at the moment. Any, anything interesting or juicy that you're uh, exploring? No, I don't think, uh, you know, I think it's, it, it's uh, common sense. It, look, it looks like, um, you know, we had already heard the report that Attorney General Garland had appointed the Chicago U.S. Attorney John Lausch to do a preliminary assessment about whether they needed to appoint a special counsel for this or not. That happened on uh, November 14th, we're told. The CBS report says that the consensual search, what consensual just means that the that President Biden consented to allow the FBI to uh, do the search, which means they don't have to go to court to get a warrant. We're told that that happened in mid-November. So I, I assume what happened is um, you know, once Lausch got the case from the Justice Department, from uh, the Attorney General, he made an investigative plan with the FBI, and that plan naturally would have included uh, trying to conduct a search in the place where they had been told there was a classified document. So that's probably why it happened. What do you, go ahead, Tony Carbonetti? A Andrew, it's Tony Carbonetti. Uh, question So when a document becomes classified, is there a central database that says there's five of these documents, there's 10 of them, where do they go? Who's the, who's the, who's the librarian, for a lack of better <laughs> phrase, that's in charge of this? Yeah. yeah, I think one of the things that we're learning about all this is that uh, the record keeping is, is pretty poor. So if documents are classified at the, um, there's three levels of classification. There's top secret, um, secret, and confidential. 
And the top secret stuff has different other categories uh, that limit its distribution. But when stuff is classified at the confidential level and the classified level uh, and the secret level, rather, which are the, the two levels that have the most classified documents, it looks like they do pretty much nothing to track the document. They well, that, do make that's very effort. reassuring. Andrew, this is Craig Eaton. They do so make we... an effort, apparently, with top secret documents, especially ones that are really super duper limited distribution. Um, you know, they assign numbers to those, and they're supposed to keep track of, um, uh, of, of who takes them and whether they get returned. But as we're seeing, there seems to be, you know, enough holes in the mm-hmm. system to make it into it's one big mess, like it looks like. Swiss cheese than security. Craig, you had a question. question? The question I have was, so the the documents that were found in the garage um, of the the president where Hunter Biden had access to, what documents would they have been? Would they be top secret, secret, or confidential? I I have not. (laughs) If there's been reporting on that, I haven't seen it. So my my recollection is the first batch CBS reported, and there was other follow-up reporting that said that that some of those documents, which they said were somewhere between like 10 and 12. We don't know how voluminous the documents are, but some of those documents had top secret uh, SCR, which is sensitive compartmented, um, SCI rather, sensitive compartmented uh, information, which is very limited use and applies to methods and sources of intelligence collection. Uh, Something's only designated top secret if somebody uh, who designates it decides that if it fell into the wrong hands, it would be catastrophic for national security. So this is the um, this is the top stuff. But I haven't seen other than that first batch. I haven't seen any reporting that said that there were top secret documents. It doesn't and, mean there weren't. We just don't know. Andy, it's it's Richard Weinberg. You just had a column which I thought was very compelling. You're talking about Congress should not tolerate the unwillingness of the Biden administration to turn over documents to congressional committees. Why is that so important? Well, I think, you know, often when these things come up, the first thing we race to is whether there's criminal liability. And that's usually actually for national security purposes and, you know, purposes of overall importance. It's like a second or third order priority. Um, The most important thing when you have a situation like this is that you get complete accountability for it uh, and that uh, any, you know, shoring up of the system that has to be done that must be done by Congress is done by Congress. So, um, you know, the system the framers gave us, uh, you know, I think if you told James Madison, here's what we think we should do, um, we'll, we'll uh, police executive misconduct by, put, by relying on prosecutors who work for the president, you know, the framers would have looked at you like you had three heads. The system they gave us was that Congress is the main check on the president. And, you know, while prosecution's not an unimportant um, priority, it's not the first priority. So I think it'd be a mistake for Congress to, you know, to defer to uh, prosecutors. And certainly the January 6th committee didn't do that. Well, we're almost at the end of the show. Uh, any, uh, we have 10 seconds. Anything you want to tell the uh, American people? Nope. Hang in there. It's going to get bumpy. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Andrew McCarthy, and thank you for being a loyal American. It's Cats at Night on the Red Apple Podcast Network.